0: Good morning. I want to uh, thank everyone. It's been a pleasure. And uh, as you may have heard, there's uh, three feet of snow coming towards the east coast. So uh, I might become the scholar for the month of uh, February and March. Uh, Let me uh, talk about uh, the Hasmonean state this morning. We've talked about uh, interesting things. We started off with the uh, destruction of the Second Temple and the consequences of the destruction of the Second, of the First Temple, rather, and the consequences of the destruction and the crucial issues that came into central importance when the Jews no longer had a temple and no longer had a state and went into exile and had to confront all those questions. Then last time, we took up the very repercussive, very fecund encounter of uh, Judaism and Hellenism And as I described it, and I think accurately, perhaps the most consequential encounter between two civilizations in the history of the world. It became a kind of paradigmatic encounter for all subsequent encounters between Jews and their neighbors, whether it was in Islam or in modernity. Uh, How do we interact? What's our way of taking valuable things, but not giving up our essential character, mediating all the challenges So the Hellenism-Judaism encounter was really a very repercussive one. And today, I wanted, as announced, to continue that and finish up with the Hasmonean state. The encounter with Hellenism, which begins in the 320's before the Common Era, is a very rich one, but it's not, of course, seamless and without uh, conflict. And The conflict is both with the foreigners and among Jews themselves on how to respond to this great challenge. I think all of you know that uh, within the Jewish community, in 167 before the Common Era, there were a group of Jews who came to the fore as Hellenism pressed against the Jewish people with more severity than ever before, and this Jewish group This Jewish group, known as the Hasmoneans, fought back against uh, the Greeks. The story is a relatively simple one. In 175, Antiochus IV became the king of Syria, the Greek-Syrian Empire. And he wanted, uh, in his own mind at least, to be another Alexander the Great, And in order to be another Alexander the Great, he had to reunify all the pieces of the Alexandrian Empire that had been broken up into three or four different empires. And he thought to begin that by first forcing the Jewish people and other peoples, not just the Jews, to be pagans so the kind of Hellenistic scheme would again be a dominant scheme and he would then go and he would conquer Egypt. He didn't succeed in either. He uh, ran into trouble in the land of Israel and he was defeated when he tried to conquer Egypt. He was defeated in the land of Israel by the Hasmoneans who were a priestly family who lived in a town called Modi'in, a little town. Today again, you know the name because it's become popular as a new new place of settlement, not far from Ben-Gurion airport, but between the second century before the common era and about 25 years ago, it was a very sleepy, a little town, but there this uh, priestly family was not willing to bow to the gods of the Assyrians and when the Assyrian army came to force their paganization they rose up, they fought for three years and the father died and the revolt was taken over as you all know by Judah the Maccabee, one of the sons. He was then murdered but the Syrians, for internal reasons, the, the actual liberation of Jews came about because of political turmoil in the Syrian state, and after about another twenty years of fighting, almost Jonathan and other of the brothers established the Hasmonean state and finally rescued Judaism from foreign domination. Now that's a happy story. We tell it every year in December. We remember Hanukkah and remember the miracles, and we celebrate it as a festival of liberation. And those of you, especially, I know there are a number of Israelis here, know in Eretz Israel, Hanukkah is a particularly big festival. It used to be even bigger because it was the festival of Jewish liberation, and the Zionists liked Hanukkah because it was a story of our self-assertion, Pinsky's auto-emancipation. But unfortunately, the Syrians uh, left a legacy, or the Hellenes left a legacy that would not go away, and the Hasmonean kings turned out to be more Hellenized than they were Hasmoneans. And one of the striking things is that when we look at the Hasmonean state, we see kings who see themselves in the model of other Hellenistic kings of that time and that place. That meant they had lavish courts, they had a lot of foreign influence, and also they measured their success by the normal kinds of conquest, wars, military adventure, and so on. And it is true that under the Hasmonean kings, the land of Israel spread its boundaries under Janaius. There was uh, the second major Hasmonean king, Alexander Janaius. There were major uh, geopolitical successes. And there were all kinds of economic developments in the land of Israel. But unfortunately, as you can see from the names of the Hasmonean kings, Hellenization was very profound. You know, there's a midrash that says that the Jewish people were redeemed from Egypt because, among other reasons, they didn't change their name. The only one who seems to have an Egyptian name is Moshe. Uh, right? Who? The midrash says that the Moshe had that names. Yeah, I understand. But Moshe itself is, a, is an Egyptian name by, tra- by tradition. Everybody knows that Moshe means being drawn out of the, reed, out of the, the sea of reeds by Pharaoh's daughter who called him Moshe. So Moshe is is an Egyptian name, and the fact is that uh, this is an important feature of Jewish life. If you give your children Jewish names, it's a sign of identity. If you give your children other names, you know, uh, I don't know, I don't want to name names, but I'm sure you can all think of names that would indicate a less, you know, so if you call your son Abraham or Isaac, it gives one identity, and if you call them, I don't know, Sean or something else, it represents a different kind of culture. Now, the names of the kings of the Hasmoneans are interesting. First is John Hyrcanus, then comes Alexander Janias, then John Hyrcanus II, then Aristobulus and Alexander, the children, and a wife named Salome. So the names indicate this uh, acculturation. Now, in the Jewish state, when the Jews were a dominant self-regulating entity, there was also obviously Jewish opinions. We've talked about this as a defining, a distinguishing characteristic of Jewish life in every period. Jews always have different opinions. And also, of course, when you have your own state, it's not only theological opinions, but there are different groups that come into being that have different interests, economic interests, social interests, political interests. You have elites, you have farmers, you have scholars, you have people who live in the countryside. So. There are many, many competing interests that come to exist and have a role in the future of a Jewish state, a Hasmonean state, and that's exactly what happened in the period after about 145, when the Hasmonean state came into being. Now these groups all had, I want to say, competing economic interests and political interests and religious interests. And they all manifest their opinions. And we know from the little uh, bit of information we have, mostly from Josephus, who was admittedly writing later, and a few little snippets in the Talmud which describe the Hasmonean state unflatteringly. The rabbis were not uh, fans of the Hasmonean kings. That in this period, these different interests coalesced into particular theological and political groups. I want to stress theological and political. We often talk about these groups in strictly political terms, but these were also in strictly theological terms, but these also represent political interests. Who's going to be taxed, for example? So remember, if the Hasmonean state has a policy of aggrandizement, military expansion, they need an army. Well, if you have an army, you have to pay for the army, and the ancient armies prayer, especially in a small state like the Jewish state, was a paid army, a mercenary army, so you had to raise a lot of money to pay foreign soldiers to go and fight for you against the the, uh, Philistines or the uh, other Amalekites or the Syrians or whoever, Jordanians, whoever was then existing. Now, this meant that if you were on top of the social pyramid, for example, and you were a friend of the king, you might think it's a good thing to have war because you benefit, right? If you have to pay the taxes, you might think it's not such a good thing because you don't care if you have a bigger border. You'd rather have a better uh, tax system for the poor. So all of the kinds of issues, many of them contemporary issues that we debate in America today about what's the old saying, bread or what's it? Guns. guns or butter. Guns or butter, right? That, it, that guns or butter was an issue uh, in the ancient world, though they had perhaps less sophisticated guns. Uh, now, this meant that a lot of groups came into being, and we know that they shifted in power in this Hasmonean uh, context, and I don't have time to take you into the ups and downs, depending on who was in power and who was able to assert themselves, but In the uh, Hasmonean state, you had various groups that formed. The first group was the Tzadokim. Now this group, which I'll spell for you in a moment, gets its name from the fact that they claimed to be heirs of Tzadok. Tzadok was the name of the first high priest in the first temple, not the second, the first. And they took the name Tzadokim as a sign of legitimacy, that they were the legitimate, oh, thank you very much. Good, thank you very much. So that they said we are the legitimate heirs of the priestly tradition going back to the Solomonic roots of temple cult, right? Saddukim. Okay, so the word Sadducee is from Saddukim. A second group that formed were called the perushim. Now this is a more complicated etymological question. We really don't know the origin. As many of you know, because you know Hebrew, you know perush means to interpret, to give a perush. It also means to separate. And therefore, some people suggest that they took the name perushim because they separated themselves from the powers that be. They separated themselves from the Hasmoneans. It's like in American politics. There was once a group called the know-nothings. You remember? Yes. Now it's true of everyone in Washington. But once, upon a, once upon a time, it had distinctive meaning. Uh, and uh, these were people who disagreed with the policy. But these are the people who become, in the Hasmonean period, the Pharisees. And later, these are people who refer to themselves as or Israel, the wise men of Israel. And we call them the rabbis. Then there was another important group, which we call the Dead Sea Community. The last one were the Jewish Christians who I'll talk about. Now, all of these groups came into being in the Hasmonean state. That's why it's so historically uh, rich and impressive in its consequences. But you have to understand that all these groups didn't have different issues. All of them were dealing with the same issues. For example, who has authority? Remember, I told you the only important religious question who has authority? Well, the Sadducees said, according to the Torah, who has authority? The priests. It says, you will go to the priests who will be in your day and they will interpret. So they said, we have authority. The Pharisees, the Perishim, said, you've lost your authority because you've sort of traded it away by your Hellenization. You've lost your authentic character as the carriers of tradition. The Dead Sea community said, we have the authority because we're the only pure, real Israel, and we have the new prophet, the teacher of righteousness, who gives the truth to our generation. And the Jewish Christians said, we have authority because Jesus has authority, right? And in the New Testament, there's a very important words. It says, Jesus taught as one who had authority. So the Christian community, so when Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 says, it has been said unto you X, but I say unto you Y, right? Then the question is, why should you listen to him? Well, you should listen to him because he has authority. He's the messianic person. Then the second question, for example, would become, what do you do interpret? Well, the Sadducees say what? What do you interpret? What's the basis of making Jewish decisions? Which Torah? Torah Sheh the written Torah. They had a very minimalist view about the oral Torah. Why would the Sadducees have a minimalist view about the oral Torah? Torah They were on top. If you're on top, you don't need to make changes, right? If you're on top, you don't want there to be social revolution. You don't want new tax forms. You want to be a Bush Republican. So you don't want to get into change, right? So you want there to be a status quo ante. You want there to be things the way they are. So. That's why the Saddu Kim didn't want to make changes. They said, what are we going to let everybody come? We're going to let these people of no authority make changes and decide everybody can be like a priest and everybody can be democratic and lead a Torah service and everybody can do this and do that. When you have the status quo, you don't want that, right? So it's like in India, right? So you have the theory of reincarnation but it's a very conservative principle. And who's a founded by the Brahmins. They decided that it shows virtue. People on the top are virtuous, and they deserve to be on top. And if the people on the bottom are behave, behave themselves in this life and don't make revolution in the next life, what will happen? They'll come back as Brahmins. On the other hand, if you're in the bottom and you make trouble, the next life, you'll come back as a donkey. So, right, so it's a very conservative. So, the, the Sadducees don't want to make any revolution. They don't want to make change. They want the status quo ante. So who do you, what do you interpret? They say the written Torah, very conservative. The Pharisees want to make change, not least the change to legitimate the Pharisees having a part in the conversation. So they want to have a liberal interpretation. You know, we have this view of the rabbis as being conservative with a small c. And of course, the Christian world lampoons the Pharisees as a kind of legalistic, narrow-minded, all these. If those of you do crossword puzzles know that often there's a word that says, what's an eight-letter word, or how many letters, nine letters, four, narrow-minded, and it's always Pharisee, right? It's a a sort of a standard thing in, in crossword puzzles. But the fact is, in their day, the Pharisees were the most liberal. They were the most innovative, they were the most creative, and most importantly, their hermeneutical principles justified the most important kinds of changes that you could make. By hermeneutical principles, I mean, the Torah is exactly the theory that the law has always to be interpreted and is legitimately interpreted in light of contemporary circumstance. So for example, after the destruction of the second temple, The situation changes, right? We don't have a temple, we don't have a state, we don't have whatever, and we have new enemies, we have Jewish Christians who've now separated themselves out, we have new situation with the Roman Empire, so the rabbis make innovations. Now, they don't call them innovations, right? Because in an ancient world, an innovation is a bad thing. They call them old things that have been less emphatically uh, emphasized or stressed, which now come to the fore for new situations. But the fact is, you see, what you interpret is crucial. The Qumran community, Dead Sea community, says what? They say what you have to interpret must include, most importantly, our oral Torah. And their oral Torah is what you and I know as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because they said they have all new revelations that the rest of Israel doesn't have. So for example, you all know that uh, one of the cardinal principles of Jewish life certainly of halachic life, is freedom of the will and open future, right? You can choose A, you can choose B. The the Qumran community were the only determinists, really, in the history of Judaism. They believed in determinism. Whereas the rest of the community believed in the temple in Jerusalem, the Qumran community said, the temple in Jerusalem is corrupt. We're not going to go and and be there. We're going to create our own temple and our own priesthood at the Dead Sea community. So the fact is, you see, they what they interpreted was not only the written Torah, but a whole additional set of books which gave a very different theology. Yes, please. I think you had earlier mentioned that they were celibate. Yes, they were celibate. And so isn't that totally in contrast to... It's certainly outside what the norm is of, for Pharisees for Pharisaic Judaism, which values the family, values children, Jewish continuity. Now, why were they celibate? First of all, because they thought that asceticism was a good thing religiously, killing the flesh and making yourself a spiritual seeker. But also, they believed in an apocalyptic scenario. First, determinist and apocalyptic. So if it's deterministic, God will determine their future. They don't have to worry about it. Right, it's not their responsibility. And secondly, they were apocalyptic in their theology. They thought the world was about to end. The world's about to end. You don't have to have children. You even see some of that in Paul, where he's against he, he promotes celibacy because he says that in this generation the Son of Man will return because he thought Jesus was coming back shortly. So there's no reason to worry about having children. You see. So if you're if you're an apocalyptic group, think the world's about to end. Having children is is an afterthought. We don't call it a cult. We call it a community within the Jewish people. It's like today we have lots of different opinions. Would we call somebody who disagrees a cult? Are the Reconstructionists a cult? Are Chabad a cult? Are Reform Jews a cult? Right, they're Their opinions. They're different opinions within the community. Right, the cult has a, sort of a, a negative connotation. Right, when we say something like the moonbeams, we say occultic, perhaps, or the moonies, right? You probably have moonbeams here, don't you? So, you know, we say they're occult, but I, that's a pejorative term. I'd like to stay away from that. I'd leave the pejorative terms for Ari. Now, the, the Jewish Christians are the last group, and they have the same thing. Who interprets? Jesus interprets. What does he interpret? A whole new set of books called the New Testament, right? His all his parables, his teaching, and the like. Then you have political questions. I want to stress that. Well, let me take a different one. Rome. What should the attitude be to Rome? That was the burning political issue of the day. The Saadu Kim said what, do you think? Comedy. They said, let's get along with Rome, because they were on top. They were benefiting from the, even though they were subjugated, let's get along with Rome. The Pharisees tended to be critical of Rome, but not revolutionary. But out of their bosom comes the revolution in the form of an extreme group called the zealots we'll talk about. The community at Qumran generally says God's in de- making decisions. We're living at the Dead Sea. We don't really care about Rome. So they did make a decision, I'll come back to, right? They, they're not interested in the political question. And the Jewish Christians said, what did Jesus say about Rome? Render, unto Caesar's, Render Caesar's unto Caesars what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's. So they were pacifists. When the revolt came in 66 to 70, they didn't see themselves as part of the Jewish people that had to revolt. Then you had other questions regarding your neighbors, Gentile neighbors, right? The world was, and remember a very important thing. In the Hasmonean period, Alexander Janias forcibly converted the pagan Gentiles of the Galilee to be Jewish. In the Talmud, there's a phrase, Galil HaGoyim, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And this also has a contemporary, interesting contemporary uh, offshoot. You know, nothing ever goes away. All the detritus of Jewish history gets piled up somewhere and gets recycled. And this came back in the Nazi period. Why was it important in the Nazi period? Because it was said that Jesus was a Gentile. See, he wasn't racially a Jew. He was a Gentile who had been forcibly converted, and therefore he didn't carry the taints. But then, of course, he couldn't be from the house of David. That was a problem for Deutsche Christen, this special group of German Christians. But there was a lot of emphasis in Germany that he was probably from the Galilee. We know he's from Nazareth, the Galilee, and that he was a converted family. There's all kinds of curious things. But then the question is, who is Israel, right? Who is a Jew? We have it in our time. Who is a Jew? It means who is Israel? Who is part of the family? So the Sadducees said, we don't believe in conversion. They didn't want to represent the converted community. They said, the people of Israel are the priests, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're a family. The Pharisees, as you know, were very optimistic, positive about conversion. How do we know that? because some of the greatest were Can you tell me who? Shemaiah and Naphtali. And the first great pair of Pharisees were by tradition. There's even a tradition Akibas. about Akiba Akibas. being, right, uh, being uh, descended from proselytes. And then also they made a great deal that when they taught Torah about Ruth, right, and so on. So they made Shir Hashirim, a black woman is the heroine of the book, right? So they were open to, to conversion. And in fact, I don't have time to talk about it, but parenthetically, you should know that in the Hasmonean period, there was enormous conversion to Judaism in the land of Israel and outside the land of Israel. The non-Jewish world, now reading the Septuagint, remember we talked about last time, the Greek Jewish Bible, now reading uh, Jewish thinkers like Philo, reading Jewish morality, were very attracted to Jewish ethics, especially, and especially women, Because in Hellenistic culture, women were treated with less respect than in the Jewish community. So we have the record of various kinds of affluent women, women who came, and we see the same in Christianity, that a large part of the early Christian community were slaves and women who could raise their social status uh, by joining a community that had more respect for them. I remember Paul saying, neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in the Christian community. So you weren't... A second class citizen if you belong to one of those categories which in Greek culture was a negative thing, right? So who is Israel? And then at Qumran, of course, the answer was only the people who belong to the community are Israel. And then the Jewish Christian said, followers of Jesus, and you don't need circumcision in the end, right? You can just become a Christian. So all of these issues. Now what I want to emphasize is I could, add, I could go on adding to this list. The question of free will versus determinism. All kinds of, of issues, but what's interesting, you notice is the, the, the Sadducees are not discussing something sep, se, Sadducean, right? They're not discussing something that's not relevant to anyone else. They're discussing the common agenda of the Jewish people in the two centuries before the common era and the first century of the common era. The Pharisees are not discussing their agenda, they're discussing the agenda of the Jewish people, though they have a different point of view. Qumran is not, despite the fact that they're by themselves at the Dead Sea and they cut themselves off from the temple and so on, they're not discussing their own agenda, they're discussing, they're giving a view, a very negative view obviously, about culture. Think like uh, you'll all remember the 60s, right? So in the 60s, when the young people left uh, Los Angeles, I'm sure you had it on the west coast, we had it on the east coast, and they went and they started a commune in uh, Montana. They weren't saying we're not interested in America, what were they saying? We care, but we don't want to go to Vietnam, we think it's the wrong war at the wrong time and the wrong place, right? So their comment was a critique of national policy. It's not that they had their dropping out was a way of saying we're critical of what's going on in the cities or in Washington or wherever. Now, I mention this because you have to understand, usually these groups are portrayed as if they're, each one has its own little sort of Daladamos, its own square, and it you know runs around like a rat in its own maze, and then there's another maze, and they run around like a rat, and so, but it's not true, there's only one maze, and they're all trying to find the way through, and they give different opinions. So in the Hasmonean state, you get a very, very remarkable diversity because there was Jewish freedom, there was Jewish power, so these questions were consequential, right? If there's no Jewish power, well, discussing relations about the foreigners may not be so central, or who was a Jew may not, but when the kings are making Gentiles Jews in the Galilee, then it becomes a really burning issue. When Gentiles in, in the whole Mediterranean world want to be Jews, then you have to discuss, what is conversion? Is it proper? Should we have policies? Because in the Bible, there's no conversion ceremony, right? The whole idea of a conversion ceremony. And I know that's a, that's a burning an issue in our time, right? About different conversions, whose conversion is legitimate, the problems that arise when the state of Israel has different standards of conversion. In America, we have three or four different denominations. Each one has a different standard of conversion. It's a real issue, and it's a real issue because not for the people who are going to be converted, and that's not so important. What's the real issue? Whether their children can marry some somebody else, right? 20 years from now. So when the two children meet at college and one says, oh, I'm Jewish, and the other one says, I'm Jewish, and then they find out they don't have the same definition of who's Jewish, it creates a lot of heartache sometimes. right? Or they want to make Aliyah, and they find out that when they go to Israel, the definitions don't don't synchronize. So that's the issue of a community. We're a community that has these as a common problem. And though we take different solutions, it's not like we take them in isolation. We take them in a context where they bear consequences for ourselves and our children and our relations with other Jews and other Jewish communal uh, organizations. Now, what happened in the Hasmonean state? What happened was very remarkable. The Jews, naturally, continued to argue about these issues. And we know that in the Hasmonean state, there were different times for different people. In the period of Janaius, we're told that as he's pushing out and making war and being successful and conquering the neighbors, he's largely supported by the Sadducees. The Pharisees, however, are very critical. They're very critical of it, especially, I would think, because of the tax policy, the spending on money. And you remember what the Torah said about having a king. Any you remember? What did the Torah say? He's going to enslave you and tax you and take your women and build his own, his own army. Remember, the Torah is not positive about kings. Uh, so the Pharisees fall back on them. And they say, you see, these, these kings are proving the truth of, of all this warning. And so they fight against Janaius, and they even accuse him of being a bastard. Not in our sense, right? When we say bastard, we just mean a bad guy. They mean someone who literally was born from an inappropriate sexual union. And the fact is that they asked him to give up what was the decisive fact about the Hasmonean kingship. Not only were they the kings, but they also claimed the high priesthood for themselves because they are a priestly family. So now the Pharisees saw the rot, both politically and religiously, and they said, you are really a rotten group. You're making not only corruption in the state, you're making corruption in the temple and in the world above. You should give up what? The high priesthood. That was more important for them. Now what happens in the Hasmonean state is all of these arguments go on, and near the end of the life of Janias, the Pharisees seem to make his life really a misery. And when his wife comes to power in 76 before the common era and rules for nine years, the 67 before the common era, her name was Salome Alexandra, She she turns to the Pharisees to make peace and there's a statement in Josephus, I don't know if it's a true statement, that she advises her children make peace with the Pharisees because they're really nudniks. They can make your life a misery. But the fact is, she dies in 67 and she's succeeded by her two children. They can't get along. The younger one tries to usurp the throne, which by right went to the older brother. The older brother seems to have been less charismatic, less energetic. But in any case, uh, the younger son tries to usurp the throne. There's a civil war in the land of Israel. Neither side is able to bring enough power to bear to, to win the war. And then both make a crucial mistake. They both turn to Rome that is starting to more and more cast its shadow on the eastern Mediterranean. They both appeal to Pompey. Pompey's legions come to the land of Israel. They support the younger brother, actually. He wins the war then he does a stupid thing, he tries to rebel against Rome, it's a complicated story, but the result is that after 67, essentially 66, the real power in the Jewish state is now Rome. Rome then appoints Herod the Great, as you know, the king of the Jews, Herod who was half Jewish and half Idumean, and in the year 37 he becomes king of the Jews, and he rules till four before the Common Era. After Herod... There are some of his children ruled temporarily, but the power is gone. The power is really in Rome for the last 125 years or so of the Hasmonean state. Now, what happens? These Jewish groups don't go away. They continue to struggle with the politics of Herod. And we know, for example, that the Pharisees got into great trouble with Herod. And Josephus tells us that Herod killed about 4,000 Pharisees in one occasion when they obviously did something that was... uh, unsatisfactory to Herod. And that was also roughly the time of Hillel the Great. It may be that the reason Hillel the Great becomes the leader of the Pharisees is because all the other Pharisees get killed. But the fact is, so it's always a good idea if you want to be a political leader to stay alive. That's, uh, you know, that's, that's a significant fact. Uh, but the, whatever the reason, when this happens, of course, the politics change a little bit. In some ways they get more extreme. The Qumran community wants even less to do with the city because now it's Roman, it's Herod, it's really corrupt. The Jewish Christians are uh, come into being as a result of Roman oppression. They murder the Christ, right? You all know the story of, of the crucifixion. Uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees are even more polarized about politics, about the temple, about religion. Everything gets more polarized because of Herod and the Roman influence. Now, something interesting happens. We read in the Gemara that there were 24, 24 Jewish groups in the time of the base Hamikdash. That's amazing, right? We think that we have uh, kind of a <laughs> pluralistic community, and we don't have 24. Uh, I mean, if you tried hard, you might generate 8 or 10 different, because you'd have the religious groups, and then you'd have Bundists, and you have assimilationists, right? I mean, we have variety, but 24, it's a staggering uh, kind of splintering, <laughs> We don't know what they all are, but that's a statement, that there were uh, 24 groups in the time of the uh, second Beis HaMikdash, all of them fighting with each other. But then history intercedes in a very uh, dramatic and important way. The Roman overlordship becomes increasingly oppressive. The reason it becomes increasingly impressive is in part that's the tendency of Roman overlordship, a kind of a natural momentum. But more importantly, the kind of people who served as the Roman governors in the land of Israel tended to be military men. You know Pontius Pilate was a centurion, was a soldier. He wasn't a a philosopher king. We're not talking about one of Plato's rulers, ideal types. And the other thing that you have to remember is the people in the ancient world were given these jobs as uh, patronage. Like we, right, if you give a lot of money to the government, they make you an ambassador and so on. Though in our time, you, you don't expect the ambassador to get rich. He's already rich. He's given money. He goes off to be the ambassador. Uh, Annenberg went to St. James, uh, the court of England, as they call it, the court of St. James. Other wealthy people who's the banker from New York went to France, who writes the New York Review of Books. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Very well, very articulate for a banker. Uh, and uh, he was also one of the people that uh, bailed out New York City, thought of the plan when, when New York City went bankrupt. A very well known immigrant, Jewish immigrant. Uh, I can't remember his name. ROTAN. Thank you. Felix Rohitin. Rohitin. R-O-H-A-Y-T-Y-N. A Hungarian Jew. So you can't trust him, but very clever. But the fact is, you know they used to have in Hungarian synagogues, not responsible for personal goods during Shema. Do you, all, do you all understand that? Okay. Now, if you don't understand that, I can't explain it to you. Uh, right? So, so the fact is that uh, the community would send, the Roman emperor would try to provide a, a pension for his military heroes who fought for him. There was no system of pensions. How would he give you a pension? He would send you off to be a governor. And you'd steal as much as you could in a few years to provide for your retirement. And that's why if you look at the, at the list of governors in the land of Israel between one, the, first century, the first year of the common era and the revolt, you'll find nobody I think serves more than four years. Almost always they serve two years and then they yank you out because someone else is waiting to steal for their chance. Now you can imagine in such a system you get th- corruption, you get uh, really terrible kinds of abuse and the local people carry the abuse, right? They're the people who are mistreated by the civil authorities, by the justice, by the taxation. So finally, there was almost a revolt in the 40s when Caligula insisted that the Jews put up a a, a statue of Caligula in the temple. Do all of you know Caligula, the mad emperor? But fortunately, the gods around Caligula saw that he was mad and he was destroying the empire and they murdered him. So the revolution temporarily was put off for about 30 years. But in 66, finally, there was a group that i put in the middle because they're so decisive, who probably grow out of what we might call the right wing of the Pharisees. They were people who shared Pharisaic opinion, but they were radical on the issue of politics. They felt everything else, all the other issues, were inconsequential if you weren't really free. That unless you were really free, everything else. So what they were zealot about was political freedom. In addition, I should say they probably had a messianic uh, inspiration. And what they thought was that just as God had come to the aid of the Hasmoneans, who were also a small group, who had been victorious 200 years before against the Greek Syrians and as he had come to the help of Moses and so on, fighting for the freedom of the land of Israel, God would intercede on their behalf. Also, they did practical things. They made alliances with the Jews of Egypt to blockade grain. They tried to make a a military alliance with the Sasanian Empire in Persia. They were really not altogether otherworldly. Unfortunately, none of their alliances worked. But they didn't go into this you know, just hoping that God would make miracles. In any case, they make a great revolt. As you know, it was called the Great Revolt by the Romans. And for four years, they held out against many Roman legions. And in the end, they were destroyed. All of you have been to Rome. You know the Arch of Titus that sits in the Roman amphitheater, the Roman Forum, which has the pictures of the spoils of Jerusalem being carried uh, to Rome. But they lose. And then, of course, the remnant hang out for another three years. They run to Masada. And at Masada, they commit suicide uh, to save Jewish dignity. And Josephus makes up that wonderful speech that he puts in the mouth of Eliezer in his uh, testimony. That's how we know about Masada. The Jewish traitor Josephus writes a beautiful speech about the Jewish hero Eliezer. You all know Josephus, right? The Starrin who was a traitor, gave up his position, lived on a pension from the king of Rome. Now, that means that there are no more zealots. Though the zealots don't go away altogether and the spirit of zealotry comes back 60 years later in the revolt of Bar Kokhba, 132 to 135. Then again, the revolt is crushed mercilessly who is it who tells us? It's, uh, I think it's Suetonius who tells us that 500,000 Jews were killed. Now, I don't vouch for that number because ancient numbers are always, you know, but it indicates the size of the, of the destruction. It was an enormous loss, the bar Kokhba revolt. But in any case, zealots disappeared. Next to the zealots, there were those who thought this was really the messianic war. There were all kinds of apocalyptic groups, and they came and they participated and they really it was self-fulfilling. They thought this was the end of the world and it was for them (laughs) because they were all murdered. The same happened to the Qumran group, interestingly. The Qumran group made a very serious error. They had generally been pacifists, except as I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, they thought one, determinism, God is sending you, God is directing you, God is causing you. And secondly, they thought that this war which was the war of the uh, Great Revolt, was the war that they had been expecting. If you go and you get a copy of the Qumran literature, any edition, doesn't matter, you'll see there's a scroll called The War of the Sons of Light versus the Sons of Darkness. Right? So this is a very famous idea that in the end of time, we have already had it in the Nevi'im, that there will be Echev HaMashiach, the birth pangs of the Messiah, will be a time of war and the war will take place where? Where will the war take place? It will take place at Megiddo, right? That's where Armageddon comes from. Armageddon means Har-Megiddo, Armageddon. And so the forces of good and evil will fight at the big plain. Remember, if you stand at Har-Megiddo and you look out, you see the whole expanse of the north-south main artery of the land of Israel and the east-west artery. So they thought that's where the the great battle would come. And they therefore thought this was their war of sons of light versus the sons of darkness. They were the sons of light. And the darkness, of course, were the Romans. So they came up. And according to Josephus, they were so zealous in their uh, certitude that this was the apocalyptic war. They took up the defense of the inner sanctuary around the base of Mikdash, the temple, and they fought very bravely. But in the end, they were overrun by the Roman forces. Parenthetically, led by the, grand, uh, by the nephew of Philo of Alexandria, who had married into the royal family of Rome and converted to paganism. The Jewish Christians had decided when the war began in 66 that this was not their war. Remember a moment ago I said to you there were two aspects to the planning of the zealots. One was, po- one was messianic and one was political. Whatever their politics, they said, render unto Caesar's what is Caesar's. So Jesus had taught them not to make revolution. On the other hand, they had an additional issue. If this was a messianic war, how much more so, as we say in Jewish life, uh, this was not their war, because their messiah had come. They were not interested in some other messiah coming. right? They didn't share the view that the messiah was still uh, in limbo, you might say. They knew the Messiah had come, he had given a message, created a community, had its own agenda. So when the war began, they went to the Roman governor, and they said to the Roman governor, who was then Vespasian, "Uh, we have no interest in this war, neither politically nor religiously. If you will allow us, we will evacuate ourselves from Yerushalayim, which was the center of the Jewish Christian community, centered around the family of Jesus, especially his brother uh, James, and... Uh, the Apostle Peter, and we'll go out of Jerusalem. We'll go out of the war zone, and we'll be neutral. Right? We'll go to Switzerland. So they went across the river of the, the Jordan River, and they went to a town called Pella, P-E-L-A or P-L-L-A, however you want to spell it. And that is called the Flight to Pella tradition in the early Church, and it was the most consequential early moment in the early history of Jewish-Christian relations because what it meant was. There's one thing to, to uh, have differences of opinion on theological matters. But when your very survival is at stake, think of in our time, some of you at least are old enough to remember 67, right? So in 67, all the Jewish people essentially put aside their differences. We raised money together, we went as volunteers together. Even in Israel, Hasidim and Misnagdim got together, right? People. Agreed. They didn't always have the same strategy, but that everyone was on the same page. And you hear these wonderful stories about grandmothers driving buses to the front and soldiers. You know, and that wonderful picture from the war of a soldier with Tefillin on, benching Esrog and Lulav in the desert. I assume you've all seen that. And Moshe, Diane, who certainly was not a believer, coming and putting a petek in the in the kotel with with Robin next to him. Uh, he was probably there to try to find some antiquities he could loot. Uh, but the fact was, or at least some women he could loot, so the fact is, uh, people had a sense of shared destiny, right? Here, at the moment of national crisis, when the Jewish people were at stake, after all, 66, the Jewish people were really at stake. It was one of those moments, one of those few moments in Jewish history where the very survival of the people was at stake, the Jewish Christian said, this is not our story anymore. We don't share this story, and so, you know, Soloveitchik, the great Rabbi Soloveitchik, once uh, published, and he referred to Brit-Go-Rail. Do any of you know what that means? It meant the covenant of destiny, that there were several covenants the Jewish people made. And this this was a phrase also in Germany in the 19th or 20th century when we referred to the Jews as a community of common destiny, what made you Jewish? Common destiny. We didn't have a country in the 1920s. We didn't have a common language, right? The Sephardim had Ladino. The Jews of Eastern Europe had Yiddish. People in America spoke English. But there was a common destiny, a destiny of the Jewish people. And this uh, is a very interesting. If you look at studies of what's happening to young people in the United States, the most distressing thing is the lack of sense of ko el or evim they just the, the number of young Jews who think that they have an obligation to Israel or to the poor of the Jewish community, well, it doesn't matter what it is. Only something, 40-something percent say they feel that. It's astonishing, right? That was the defining mark of Yiddishkeit, of being a Jew. No matter what your politics, no matter what your religiosity, you knew there was a destiny. So the moment of crisis, the Chris, Jewish Christians said, we don't want to be, we don't have that destiny. We don't share that destiny. Our destiny is elsewhere. And from then on, their destiny was elsewhere. And we know by the time of Bar Kokhba 60 years later, Bar Kokhba puts Jewish Christians in chains. We have a letter where he refers to, to Christians as enemies and he puts them in chains. Now, this is very important because it means that the Jewish Christians become a separate community. They're now Christians in the real sense. They go out and they convert the Gentiles. The community becomes essentially a pagan community. They stop having circumcision. And you all know the rest of the story, a a parting of the ways is often said. That left two groups in the Jewish community. The Sadducees, as a result of the war, not of their own doing, but. The unintended consequence of the war, from their point of view, was that they disappear. Why? Because they're the aristocracy who does two things. They're the party, the political party that controls the temple, priests. And they have gotten into close alliance politically with the kings, who are their neighbors in the upper city of Jerusalem. Right. So the wealthy aristocratic class and the priestly class were were combining, both by marriage, by interest, by financial, politics. Now that there's no temple and there's no state, they have no raison d'etre, they disappear. It's like after the American Revolution, there were people in America who were royalists. After 1776, you couldn't be a royalist. So you either became a Republican, right, in the old sense, or you went back to England, like Ben Franklin's son. Ben Franklin's son was a royalist. He didn't want to live in a republic, he went back to England. So that's what happened to the Sadducees. It was no longer a live option. We had no state, we had no temple. That left the Pharisees. Now the question is, and it was a consequential question, just like in 586, the morning after Tisha B'Av, in 586, remember we started with that. Would the Jewish people survive? Or would they be swept away, like all the other ancient peoples, by conquest and conversion? Again, in the year 70, the question was, would Jewish people survive? And the answer, because you're all here uh, 2,000 years later, almost 2,000 years later, the answer is we survived. How did we survive? The Pharisees were no longer the Pharisees. They now became the Chachamim, and we call them the rabbis. They took, I want to stress this, they took their pre-70 ideology, especially Torah Shabal right? Their pre-70 ideology, which allowed them to meet new circumstances They also had done what before 70? They'd already, in a sense, delegitimated the priests in terms of their own authority, right? We said they were authoritative. They had already represented the diaspora in an open way. We'll let everybody come into the community on certain conditions. They had already taken a kind of a neutral position in terms of politics. We'll go with the flow. We don't make revolution. We can live with it. So they have an ideology that's viable without a temple and without a state. So in 70, you all know the famous tradition, Yochanan ben Zakkai, seeing the destruction writ large, goes to, has his disciples go to some guards uh, who are at the uh, surrounding Yerushalayim, and they tell him this uh, great sage has died. They want to bury him outside the city. The sage is Yochanan ben Zakkai hiding in a casket. The Romans, for reasons that aren't altogether clear, allow the burial to take place. He comes out, he foretells, he meets the Vespasian, the emperor, and he tells him he's going to be, he's not an emperor, he's a king, a, a general, going to be, he's going to be the emperor. And they let him go. He says, all I want is to go teach Torah. They let him go to Yavna, which is on the sea coast, today near Rehovot somewhere. And they set up a community, and the rest is history. So that the whole history of the Jewish people until modern times is the history of Pharisaic Judaism, what we call rabbinic Judaism. In that sense, the rabbis are the great hero of the story. They are the people who supply the intellectual wherewithal, the ideological uh, model that allows Jewish life to survive in the absence of a temple, to survive in the absence of a state, and to flourish in the absence of the old kind of leadership. Right, Rabbis replace priests and so on. So the rabbis are the great hero of the story. We're all, in that sense, in their dead. Of course, in modernity, again, we start to unravel the traditional positions, and we take different views about the rabbis and their authority, their lack of authority, who they were, what they were. But there's no doubt, for a very long time, they are the essential feature. Now, I should just end to sort of bring the circle to a close. What the Pharisees do theologically in some way is very much like, what the 6th century prophets and then Ezra nehemiah do when they democratize Judaism, when they interpret to meet their needs, when they give the answer that our situation is in our own hands, because of our sins we are exiled, which sounds like a negative thing. But if we're exiled because of our sins, that means we can end the exile by returning, right? It's not predestined. It's not a judgment that's without end, without some kind of influence from below to above. So we are in control, in a sense, of our own historical uh, circumstance and in our relation both to the land of Israel and to the God of Israel. And those are the doctrines that keep the Jewish people viable, functional, uh, until the 20th century. So with that, I think I should stop. And thank you all very much for listening.